Let me uh, give you an opening question. If you were starting a new school, some of our younger ones have just done that, or a new job, or entering or, or moving to a new area, what kind of qualities do you think would be helpful to make sure that you were fully involved? So that's not a rhetorical question. Uh, Shout some answers out. You're starting a new school. Sam? A good teacher. That is an excellent answer. If I'm, I'm not just thinking about school, though. I'm thinking more about starting a new thing, new school, new job, new area. What kind of things would be good personal qualities for you to have as you do something new? Friendliness. Yeah. Excellent. Self-confidence. Excellent. Yeah. You've got to have confidence. Uh, and, and I think what, what I was saying there in the question was, if you're going to be fully involved, the last thing you want is to be kind of too shy to be involved. That, that, that's kind of a missed opportunity. Go on, Sam. Determination. Determination. Excellent word. These are all good school words. Looking for opportunities. Looking for opportunities. Excellent, yeah. Well, I think the reason I kind of keep, keep those thoughts in your mind the reason that, I, that I've asked that question is that the, the book of Acts really represents a completely new era in the life of God's people in biblical history. Jesus is going back to heaven. The, the disciples are left behind on earth, just a few of them as we'll see. And they're going into a completely new territory. There's lots of things that they're going to need. Determination, confidence. And ho hopefully as we do some introduction today we'll see that uh, what, what those uh, things are. So, the book of Acts, I'm, I'm going to assume nothing uh, this afternoon. I think as you come to this code, the title's weird, isn't it, to start with? Have you ever heard of a book called, just called Acts? I mean, what, what's that all about? Is it a noun? Is it a verb? Is it, what, what is it? Uh, we, we, I think Christian people are familiar with the Bible, just take for granted that this book's in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. What, what is that title all about? Well, when the New Testament was being compiled, um, after a lot of these documents were written, I, I, I don't know, but I suppose somebody must have sat down at some point and thought, what is this particular document about? And what are we going to call it? And where are we going to put it in the Bible? Um, it's not an easy book to give a title to, but someone came up with the idea to call it The Acts of the Apostles. That's really its full title. I don't know why in our Bibles it just says Acts sometimes. Um, so some, some bright spark in early church history decided to call this document The Acts of the Apostles. I don't think that's a bad title um, because the, the, the title Acts of the Apostles gives the impression that it is um, a, a dynamic book um, it, it certainly wouldn't be a good idea to call this particular document the reflections of the apostles or the dreams of the apostles or the aspirations of the apostles this is all about what they did it is a doing book it's one of action and exploits and dynamic stuff going on but on the other hand I think the title of the Acts of the Apostles whoever gave it that title um, I don't know, I think it gives the impression that this is some kind of biography that is intended to pay tribute in some way to what the apostles did. The Acts of the Apostles. And you can imagine a film of that title, couldn't you? 
Acts of the Apostles. The problem with that is that actually the whole book only really focuses on two apostles, Peter and Paul. Um, It doesn't really say a great deal about any of the others. There's a little bit. It also contains stuff, uh, there's characters in there like Stephen and Philip who weren't technically apostles. But also, if it, if it is just about, let's say, Peter and Paul, it is a little bit weird that you go through the whole book, first 12 chapters mainly about Peter, rest of the book mainly about Paul. It doesn't say anything about their birth or death. At the end of the book, it just seems to hang with Paul under house arrest in Rome. So if it is a biography of these guys, it's kind of odd that it just finishes on a sort of hanging note. I'm not sure that Luke is just writing biographies of the apostles here. What what he's really doing is writing about the exciting mission of the early church. And it isn't primarily about the Acts of the Apostles. I think a better title would be the Acts of Jesus. Through the power of his Holy Spirit in this world. It isn't really about what they were doing. It is really about what God is doing through them in the early church. So I hope we'll see this book isn't primarily a biographical tribute to great leaders, but much more a careful historical record of God's intervention in real human history. And So whoever came up with the title The Acts of the Apostles, it's not a bad title, but maybe we could think of a better one. We, we've called this little series Mission Unstoppable. I think it would be great, that, wouldn't it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mission Unstoppable. Romans, 1 Corinthians. That would have been a great tie, wouldn't it? Mission Unstoppable. But it, someone called it Acts of the Apostles. Maybe they weren't that exciting back then, I don't know. Now, we're, so the other thing that they needed to decide was where are we going to put this particular book in the Bible? It is quite a unique book, um, Acts. And if you check out the contents page of the New Testament, you will see that uh, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, Later on, the rest of the New Testament is very largely made up of letters written to Christians in various places. So Paul writes to Christians in Rome, so the letter's called Romans. He writes two letters to Corinthians, uh, to the church in Corinth. 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, so on and so on. So you've got Gospels to start with and letters to end with. And Acts is a unique book because it kind of sits right between these two genres, um, almost like a bridge. I don't know if you can imagine the New Testament without the book of Acts in there, but if we only had the records of Jesus' life and we only then had letters written to churches but we didn't have the book of Acts, we would know very little about the early church. We would know very little about how the first Christians behaved, how they organised themselves, what they did, how the church grew. We could guess and work some of that out from the letters, but we only have one side of those conversations, so we have to kind of assume and sort of intuitively work out what the issues were So the book of Acts, we ought to be really thankful, I think, for the book of Acts because without it, we wouldn't really know anything 
about the early church. So Acts is a very unique book in the New Testament that bridges the Gospels and those letters. However, you can understand why someone would put it in that place in the order of books in the Bible. But the order of the books in the Bible hides the fact that Acts isn't just a standalone book. It is actually a sequel to one of the Gospels. And the same guy, Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. You could say that Luke and Acts are really one book written in two parts. I was reading one guy, I I didn't know this, Uh, Luke and Acts are, depending on how you measure it, number of words, number of verses, Luke and Acts are the two longest books in the New Testament. They make up 30% of the whole of the New Testament. And apparently, both books are about the maximum number of words you could fit on a normal scroll. So as Luke writes his one book in two volumes, what he's actually doing is filling one scroll, roll that up, tie up, send that to the and then he's filling the next scroll, roll that up, and he's actually writing one book in two parts. So you can understand why the compilers put Acts after John, but in a way, Acts should go after Luke. I was talking with Sam about this, maybe what they should have done was gone Matthew, Mark, John, then Luke, and then Acts, and that would have made more sense. So we've criticised them for the name, and where they put it in the Bible. We're doing a great job out this afternoon. So, because... Here's the deal, and Because Luke and Acts go together as one book in two volumes, and there's a lot of precedence for that in ancient writing as well. I think Luke is a very well-educated chap, and he's not just making up that idea. There are other people who've written similar things in ancient times. But because Luke and Acts go together... I want us to go to the beginning of Luke because what Luke says at the start of his gospel actually applies to both. So by way of introduction, we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking at the the sort of introduction to Luke's gospel. So if you can turn there, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles, it's on page 1025, Luke chapter 1. So think of this introduction as the introduction to a two-part volume. Does that make sense? This is not just the introduction to Luke's Gospel, but to Luke and Acts. So here's what Luke says. Just the first four verses in the prologue here. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, From the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then he goes on into the material he's written. Very interesting little introduction, that. Um... Unprecedented, really. The, the other Gospels haven't, you know, no, very few authors in the Bible tell us specifically why they're writing. So I, ju- I just want to pick out three things here um, from that introduction. First of all, uh, did you notice there that Luke is not writing about ancient history, 
something that happened hundreds of years before that he's researched, he is actually part of this story. That's quite important, isn't it? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled when? Among us. He, he is actually living in this story. What, what's interesting about that, he, he participates in the later parts of the story as we go through the book of Acts. In fact, when, when you get into the book of Acts, Luke is actually there. There's, a, there's some very interesting sections in Acts. Acts chapter 16. Luke's writing about they did this, they did that, they did the other. When you get to Acts 16, he suddenly starts to say, we. We. Acts chapter 16, verse 11, from Tras, we put out to sea. And the next day, to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi which implies that Luke was there when Lydia became a Christian in the city of Philippi. So he's very much part of this story. He's not there all the time, but for some of it, he was actually there. So he is part of the story. That's really important, I think, to recognise that he's not writing about something that happened 500 years ago. Some historians do do that. But Luke here is part of this story. Secondly, I think it's... um, a fair assumption uh, to, to, to make that he is telling the truth there. Um, many scholars have written all sorts of things about this little introduction. Luke here claims to be a careful historian. Um, let's just think about three um, sort of justifications for that. First of all, Luke tells us that he has spoken to people who were from the beginning eyewitnesses. I don't think Luke was involved too much in the things that happened in the life of Jesus. But it's pretty clear that he was very well travelled. When I, when I think about the Christmas story even, when you read even in the early chapters of Luke, I, I, I think Luke must have spoke, spoken to Mary. When he tells the story of the birth of Jesus... And there's, 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 there's some points where it says, and Mary treasured these things up in her heart. Can you imagine Luke speaking to Mary as an older woman and talking about her recollections of what happened here? How would he know that she treasured those things up in her heart if he hadn't spoken to her? She's present there at the beginning of the book of Acts, so it's clear that Luke would have known her. So Luke is a man who is a very careful historian He's spoken to eyewitnesses. I think the second thing to say about Luke as a historian is that he is one of the only gospel writers who connects his story to what's going on in the wider world. So even in verse 5 here, on the first page of Luke's gospel, he says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Later on he speaks about the census and he talks about Caesar Augustus. And and Quirinius being the governor of Syria, he does the same thing in the book of Acts. All the way through both volumes, Luke is writing as a historian because he wants to connect his story with what's happening in the wider world. This is a real political landscape. And Luke wants his readers to know that this is not a myth or a legend, but real history. These things happened in the real world. 
So he's investigating these things, speaking to eyewitnesses, connecting his story to a bigger story that's going on in the world. I think a third reason why Luke is a good historian is that it's very interesting how he portrays different people in different groups. If you're a historian and you were trying to write propaganda, so you're trying to defend one particular group and maybe you're trying to malign another group, there's always an element of bias creeps in, isn't there, to the writing. You're, trying to, you're, put, you're putting a slant on things. What, what's very interesting in the book of Acts is that often Luke portrays Christian believers as less than savoury characters. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Think in chapter 5, if you know the story. Hypocrites in the early church. Think about the big row that Paul has with John Mark. It says in Acts that they had such a sharp disagreement that they went in opposite directions. The, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, Paul, is having a massive... I'm not taking him, he left after last time. Oh, please, don't, no, get lost. It's like, he, the way he portrays it is very human. On the other hand, I think the way Luke portrays unbelievers is very sympathetic. When you read the book of Acts, there are many examples of unbelievers who show great wisdom, clarity of thinking... So this isn't someone who's writing a propaganda piece who's trying to make his own side look good and the baddies look bad. He's just writing things as he sees it. And sometimes that means that the believers are shown in unfavourable light and the ones that he's, uh, who are not believers are shown in a very favourable light. So Luke is part of the story, but he is also telling the truth. Thirdly, did you notice that he is also writing to help? What do we mean by that? It's often the case in history that uh, people would have written a document to maybe a patron or like, like a Theophilus. It's quite a most excellent Theophilus. He sounds like quite a bigwig, doesn't he? And it seems like Luke is writing to him, but it... it I don't know. I was trying to think what the parallel would be in our culture. Sometimes people write letters to newspaper and they say, Dear Michael Gove, I'm a teacher and... And, they, and it's called an open letter. They're writing to him, but they want everyone else to see what they've written. Are you familiar with that, an open letter? I think this is what's happening here, that Luke is writing this for Theophilus, but he's writing it for other people too. And that's why it was circulated. But he's wanting to help Theophilus. Theophilus is a man who is wavering. I, I, I want to put this down on paper for you, Theophilus. Why? What does verse 4 say? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. There's a wealth of stuff in there, isn't there? You get the impression that Theophilus is a believer, he has been taught the gospel. But he's not 100% sure, is he? And Luke says, I'm going to put all this down on paper for you. Because I want you to be certain of the things you've been taught. I don't want you to be wavering and unsure. Going back to our question at the start, what do you need if you're going into a new situation? I think it was Hannah that said, confidence. That is exactly what Theophilus hasn't got. 
He's wondering whether Christianity is really true. But as Luke writes to him, he's really effectively writing to all other Christian believers who are unsure. A new thing is happening. A new era is dawning. And Luke wants Christian believers to be confident. Often I think we can have the very romantic idea that everything was simpler in the past. Don't you think that sometimes? Uh, do you think that's true? Do you think things were simpler in the past? could debate that, couldn't we? We certainly have a lot more technology and information now, don't we? But were things really simpler in the past? Imagine you're a Theophilus and you live in the first century. Before Jesus, there was a massive influential Greek empire that Jai would have liked to live in this time because they were very, unbanned, very good at maths, philosophy, you know, the Pythagoras, all, all this stuff. You know, they, uh, they're kind of renowned for being great philosophers. The Greek Empire, that, that influence is still there. Then the Roman Empire, military might, power, not philosophy. And within that, you've got all sorts of little ethnic groups like Jews who don't even possess their own land. Dominated by the Roman Empire, two and a half million Jews in a 50 million population Roman Empire, struggling for identity and a place in the world. And Jesus is born into this complex, multicultural world with all sorts of religious and ethnic tensions. We're going to see that the first Christians numbered only 120 people. One commentator says that this is a tiny dot on the demographic map. Even the Jews were a minority group in Roman times. And these first Christians were a minority group within a minority group. 120 of them, a little dot on the landscape. And I think Theophilus here is wondering, if Jesus is the Christ who fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures... How does this apply to people who are not Jews? And if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah fulfills all of the Old Testament, why is it that so many Jewish people have rejected him? If he's the one who was promised, why do they all hate him so much? Why did they even crucify him? If he's the pinnacle of the Old Testament, what is going on? And more than that, why is the Roman Empire so keen to persecute these Christians, throw them into prison, have them stoned? And as he sits back and thinks about what he's been taught, he's thinking, this is a complicated world. Why is it so hard? It looks like God isn't in control. It looks like Jesus has been a failure. I know that people are teaching me this stuff, but is it really true? Can you imagine Theophilus' mindset? I wish you had more time to go into some of the background. But Luke's task here is really crucial. He's writing here a two-part book or document or volume to Theophilus to help him to be certain of the things he's been taught in the middle of a complex world. He isn't writing to persuade unbelievers on the outside. He's writing to encourage believers who are on the inside, who are wondering... I got mixed up and got this wrong. He's trying to encourage Theophilus to be confident 
in the face of a complex world. And I think Luke here has given this whole church in history an amazing gift. A carefully researched, historically accurate, and pastorally important gift. And we should be very thankful for that, shouldn't we? What is he trying to help Theophilus to understand then? Um, So this is kind of the pastoral part. I just want to say four things that he's trying to emphasize to Theophilus. Maybe you're ahead of me here. Um, First of all, he's trying to show Theophilus that Christianity is true and legitimate. I think one of the challenges for Luke is he's trying to show Theophilus that Christianity is not a radical new militant cult. Do you get that? This is not a new little radical cult that is opposed to everything that's gone on in the past. We're just trying to break all that up for this new thing to come in. Christianity isn't like a new kid on the block, like a little upstart coming on to upset everyone. No. Jesus is the true and legitimate fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. I think Luke is really keen. Why does he, in, in the very first verse here, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been what? Fulfilled among us. It's right there in the first verse. Even in the first verse, the little seed's there. This is, some, this is not something that's just happened. This is something that is the fulfillment of all of the past stuff that's been going on. Jesus comes to fulfill a continuing overarching story. Uh, The second thing I think Luke wants to say to Theophilus is that the Christian faith is inclusive. It's for everyone. This story is a fulfillment of of Judaism, but it's now expanding and broadening to include all people. Jesus isn't just for the Jews, but for the Greeks and the Romans and everybody else. Christianity isn't just a new ethnic group or a new country, but a movement that includes all people, Jews, Greeks, Romans, rich, poor, male, female, slaves, free. Luke is trying to show Theophilus that Christ is the saviour of the world. Incidentally, one of the great things about Luke's writing is that he is so... I want to say culturally classless. Do you get that? There are some people we come across in our lives and we just think, do you know what? That person could relate to anyone. In our modern culture, I mean, you know, that that person could relate to the, the working class people, could relate to the upper class people. There's something, some people just have an ability, don't they, to relate to anyone and be able to speak their language and I think Luke was that kind of person he's obviously an educated man he's very well travelled he's aware of Greek culture Roman customs he's sympathetic to Judaism but when he writes in Luke and in Acts he's very conscious of the marginalised and the vulnerable in Acts he tells the story of a crippled beggar sitting outside the gate called Beautiful 
And then later on, he's in the courtroom recording what happens with Festus and Felix putting Paul on trial for preaching the gospel. He's equally at home with all kinds of different people. I think in the Gospels and in Acts, he's very sympathetic to women, which is very significant in a male-dominated culture. The way Luke writes shows that he doesn't think the Gospel is only for one particular group, but it is for all ethnic groups, and it's for all socio-economic levels of society, if we can say it that way. He is culturally classless. The third thing I think Luke's trying to do is show that Christianity, well, let me say it this way, the Roman state, the Roman Empire, has nothing to fear from Christianity. What are we going to do with these Christians? Are they Jews or are they not? Is this a new cult? These guys, they they seem to be turning the cities upside down as they go there and preach. Many places that led to persecution. What Luke's trying to do is show that Christians are not intent on destroying the peace or overthrowing the empire he's trying to show that Christians actually are good citizens why, why does he talk so much about Roman officials putting Christians on trial part of the reason is that they weren't guilty of anything other than preaching the gospel they're not a danger to society the Roman Empire has nothing to fear Christianity is a positive influence not an insidious threat. That's very important for Theophilus. He's wondering whether he's got the wrong end of the stick here. And the fourth thing I think that he wants Theophilus to know is that all of that said, the fact remains that Christianity is often attacked. And the reason it's attacked is because people don't want Jesus to be king in their lives. But in the end, Luke's story is that despite all the opposition, conflict, persecution, the message of Jesus has power to transform people's lives, to bring forgiveness, peace, real change. And even though many people resist it and don't like it, this is still, in the end, God's story This is God intervening in real human history, real politics, real life. I think Theophilus is struggling with all these questions and Luke writes to reassure him that he's not been deceived, he hasn't made a mistake. This is a messy world, but Jesus is king and the gospel is growing and making progress. What does all that mean for us then? If we could break into groups and discuss that, couldn't we? What does that mean for us? Luke is writing to inspire this man's confidence. Why? Surely it's so that he will be able to participate in the story, isn't it? Sometimes we say, don't we, you've got to be in it to win it. You ever ever hear that phrase? You've got to be in it to win it. People talk about that with the lottery, don't they? You've got to be in it to win it. Well, I I think you can't be in it if you don't believe it, can you? What he's trying to encourage Theophilus to do is to have confidence and certainty about what he's been taught so that he will participate in the ongoing story. 
If we're going to be effective, we need courage and faith. We need to see clearly the truth of the gospel. We need to be ready to stand on it, to live in it, to preach it, even when it's hard. I wonder, can you identify with Theophilus? Do you feel sometimes that Christianity seems like a nice idea, but it's a complicated world, isn't it? I think the book of Acts will do you good because that's exactly why Luke writes his two-part volume. Christianity is not irrelevant or boring or aimless or or a relic from the past. For Luke, it is the ongoing, overarching story of what the living God is doing in his world. And even right here, 2,000 years later in Rotherham, amazingly, we are part of that unfolding story. Isn't that incredible? This is God's mission unstoppable. We need to get to Acts chapter 1 though, don't we? Let's go back to Acts chapter 1 then. We're not going to be uh, too long here. Acts chapter 1. I think with that background in mind, Acts now will make more sense to us. So, Sam read to us. So this is part two of his two-part work. And what does he say? There's no introduction this time as such. He just begins, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And then he just gets straight into the narrative. In my former book, Theophilus, straight away, we can see now that this is a sequel. Did you get that? The first part was all about what Jesus began to do. That little word, began. This book, now Theophilus, is all about what Jesus carries on doing. There's a famous writer called Alan Bennett. He wrote a play called The, Mad- the Madness of George III. Do you know it? England had four Georges in a row, and the third one of them apparently was bonkers. But when they made the play, the play was called The Madness of George III, but when they made the play into a film, they had a problem with the title. Because if they called it The Madness of George III, most American moviegoers would think that it was the third film in a trilogy, and they'd wonder why they haven't seen the third and the second one. So they'd think, I'm not going to bother with that one, I haven't seen the other two. So they, when, they, when they brought the film out, they just had to call it The Madness of King George, miss off the third bit, even though it was King George III, he was apparently bonkers. So, they're not exactly snappy titles, but um, here's my little uh, title for Luke and Acts, based on what Luke says here in Acts 1 verse 1. You could see Luke as the deeds and words of King Jesus Part one. I don't mean King Jesus the first and King Jesus the second. Don't get confused that there's two Jesuses. Uh, what I mean is part one and part two. So Luke is all about the deeds and words of King Jesus part one. And Acts is all about the deeds and words of King Jesus part two. In the first part of this volume, Jesus is on earth physically. In the second part of this volume, he's not on earth physically. He's still doing his work on earth but he's directing it from heaven. What is the significant event then that connects Luke, 
and acts together as one volume. Well, in verse 2, Luke says, until the day he was taken up to heaven. And in chapter 1 here, as we'll see, maybe next time, Luke Luke talks about the ascension. In this two-part volume, two scrolls, the Gospel of Luke ends how? With Jesus ascending to heaven. And the book of Acts, amazingly, begins how? With Jesus ascending to heaven. Two parts. Part one ends with the ascension. Part two begins with the ascension. It's like two books overlap with the ascension in the middle. Got a great little graphic. (laughs) The ascension. It's not like an apple pie. So here's a question for you. Is the ascension the end or the beginning? That's not a rhetorical question. Both? Everyone? Is it the end? It's part of it is part of the story, but it's very significant that the gospel ends with it and Acts begins with it. So you're right, it's obviously both because it wouldn't be in there both times, would it? So I just want to, as we close, I just want to think about this. The ascension is a very fitting end to the gospel. So let's just think about that first. Why, why is it a fitting end to the gospel? Well, it shows who Jesus Christ really is. It means also that his death and resurrection were effective. And it means that what Jesus did in the world, we could say, mission accomplished. It is a great ending, the the exaltation of Jesus. Just get this, it shows that while this world shook its fist in God's face and said, crucify him. We don't want this man to be our king. While the courts of this world did away with Jesus as a criminal, God has exalted him to the highest throne. He is not just the king of the Jews, he is the king of the world. And when you go to the end of Luke, read it later, you go to the end of Luke's gospel and see the disciples' reaction Jesus ascends to heaven and it says they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, I've had a few experiences when I was younger courting my now wife and her parents used to joke, I would would go back to university two days later than I should have done because I didn't want to part from her. And I haven't really got any important lectures tomorrow, I'll just stay another day and that's a bad example to any of you as students. But we say, don't we, parting is such sweet sorrow. Jesus ascends to heaven. You'd think they'd be trudging back to Jerusalem. He's gone. No, it's, the impression you get is that they were skipping back to Jerusalem. Why? Because their saviour is now in glory. He's bigger than Pontius Pilate. He's more senior and superior than Augustus Caesar. Jesus is in heaven and they are filled with joy. 
That is a very fitting end to the gospel. We might be tempted to ask, wouldn't it be better for Jesus to hang around for a bit? What manager takes their best player off the pitch in the middle of the game? Wouldn't the whole world be more convinced of Christianity if Jesus could have just stuck around for a bit longer to prove himself? Well, apart from the fact that when he did show up, the world crucified him, (laughs) the question misses something very important. The exaltation of Jesus is really important and good news because it means that what he did for humanity worked. Old TV news programs used to say about journalists, and now here is our man in Moscow. You you remember that on the old newsreels? And now here is our man in New York. Listen, Jesus, now here is our man in heaven. He died for our sins. He rose again and has been exalted as Lord and King for his people. How do you know that you're right with God? The reason you know that is because Jesus, your Savior, is in heaven with your name on his heart. That isn't a feeling or something to aspire to. Jesus is King and that makes you who believe in him secure. We sing it, don't we? And while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I can't remember the first line of the song, but you know the one I mean. Before the throne of God above, that's it. I have a strong, a perfect plea. The exaltation of Jesus is a perfect fitting end to the gospel. Mission accomplished. One commentator says this. I've put this in really small print. don't know why. This is a message that is a marvel of simplicity. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He died to pay for our sins. He was resurrected. Now he is exalted in heaven. He calls us to believe in him and so receive forgiveness of sins. This is good news. There is nothing to join, no system to climb, just a person to receive, and in him, eternal life. So the ascension of Jesus is a huge comfort and an appropriate ending to the gospel, and it underpins the security of our salvation. But it's not actually ultimately the end of the story. Tim is right. In the book of Acts, the ascension is the beginning of the story because the exaltation of Jesus becomes the foundation and the beginning of mission unstoppable. It is the beginning of growth and expansion of the kingdom of Jesus across the whole world. And the fact that Jesus is king is the driving impetus for mission. The fact that Jesus is king lies behind the whole book of Acts. It isn't the Acts of the Apostles so much as the Acts of King Jesus directing and leading and governing his people. Verse 8 is the key to the whole book. If you, Maybe this could be the contents for the whole book. Jesus says to his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The whole book of Acts tells that story. You will be my witnesses. I'm the king, now go. I'm sending you. Doesn't this affect what we say about Jesus to other people? We don't, we're not doing a survey about Jesus when we talk to people about the gospel. We're not doing a survey. What do you think about Jesus? What we're doing when we're witnessing 
We're not, we're not, it's not that Jesus might be king one day. It isn't that we can decide whether or not he's king. Our mission is not inviting people to decide whether he's king. Our mission is to proclaim that he has been exalted as king. And the kingdom of Jesus grows and expands where people come under his righteous rule in this world. This is what Theophilus needed to encourage his confidence and motivate him to be involved in the ongoing story. It's brilliant. Luke and Acts, absolutely brilliant. This is what God, Jesus has done in the past to save you. And this is what he's doing now to expand and grow his kingdom. Theophilus, take courage. Christ is king. God is in control. Luke is part of this unfolding story. He's writing to Theophilus to inspire him to be part of the same story. The question is, will you be part of that story?